All of us know how important it is to put good things in our bodies to help us stay strong. That desire was the inspiration for a line of wellness teas from Bigelow called Bigelow Benefits. Bigelow Benefits teas fuel your body with good-for-you ingredients like lemon and echinacea to help you stay well, rose and mint to relieve stress, and for a good night's sleep, chamomile and lavender. Bigelow Benefits, redefining wellness every day. Available at your local grocer on Amazon or at BigelowTea.com. Bigelow Tea. Grab a mug and tea proudly. Hi, I'm Andrea Donsky, founder of NaturallySavvy.com and co-host of our Naturally Savvy podcast. And I am Lisa Davis, MPH health educator, co-host of Naturally Savvy and author of the book, Cleaning Eating Dirty Sex Memoir Cookbook Healthy Lifestyle Guide. At Naturally Savvy, we are here to help you make healthier lifestyle choices. So we are so honored that you are tuning in to listen to our podcast on a weekly basis. And we are here to engage you, have fun, and help you live your healthiest lifestyle. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy. I am so excited to have on the program the wonderful Stephen, excuse me, Steve Taylor, PhD. He is the author of Extraordinary Awakenings When Trauma Leads to Transformation and many other best-selling books. He's a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the chair of the Transpersonal Psychology Section of the British Psychological Society. Steve's articles and essays have been published in over 100 academic journals, magazines, and newspapers, and he blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today. Hello, Steve. Welcome. Hi, Lisa. Great to be with you. First of all, what is transpersonal psychology? Transpersonal psychology is, I guess you could call it spiritual psychology. It's the area of psychology which kind of overlaps with spirituality and which connects Western psychology with Eastern spirituality. So it's kind of like, a, you know, the, the bridging area between psychology and spirituality. It's really interesting. You know, what was so interesting about the book is that you share a lot of different stories from people who, you know, woke up to these profound experiences after bereavement, deep depression, suicide attempts, addiction, military combat, imprisonment, and more. Some people have these and some people don't. So what I'd love to do is first define what it is. And then I'd love to jump into why you think it happens for some people. And then other people have gone through similar things and, and haven't had it at TTT. Well, transformation through turmoil is a, it's, it's, it can be gradual, but it's usually a dramatic and sudden transformation that happens in the midst of intense psychological turmoil. So it can happen, for example, after a diagnosis of cancer, after bereavement, after a long period of addiction or depression. It can also happen to prisoners who've been incarcerated for a long time, soldiers in the midst of combat. Um, and it's almost as if it's a, it's a sudden shift in identity. It's almost as if they become a different person living in the same body. And it's usually a spiritual awakening. So people feel more connected to the world around them, more connected to other people. The world seems like a more beautiful and fascinating place. Um, life seems more meaningful. And they, what, one, one important aspect of it is that people no longer take anything for granted. They have this amazing sense of gratitude and an amazing sense of appreciation for all of the the small things, the, the things that we normally take for granted. And um, so, yeah, so that, that's that, that's what transformation through turmoil basically is. Why would you say that some people experience and others don't? Do they have perhaps a more, more spirituality in their background, a, a history of meditation or mindfulness? 
No, I mean, interestingly, a lot of the people who I, I talk about in the book did not have a background in spirituality. They didn't know anything about spirituality. And as a result, they didn't really understand what had happened to them. They knew that they felt different, but they thought, hey, you know, why am I so different? Why does everything seem so different? It was only later on, usually after a few months or a few years, they discovered spiritual books or spiritual groups or spiritual teachers. And then they thought, hey, that's right. I've had a spiritual awakening. That's what's happened to me. But no, that, that didn't seem to be a factor. Um, I think when people did have a, a background in spirituality, it helped them in their transformation. It helped them to understand what happened. It also made their transformation more smooth because some people, you know, had a kind of, if they didn't understand what happened to them, it could be quite tricky, quite, even sometimes a bit disturbing, despite all the positive aspects. I think a lot of people do experience um, what psychologists call post-traumatic growth, which is a, that's a, a more kind of milder, a less dramatic form of um, transformation through turmoil. And in fact, in research, between a third and a half of people experience post-traumatic growth. In the, in the aftermath of trauma. So that's quite common. But obviously the, the kind of transformation I'm talking about is much more dramatic. And I, I did I did look into reasons why only, only a, a small proportion of people experience this. And it, it, it does seem to be quite random, apart from the fact that some people just seem to be ready. They seem to be ready for transformation. Maybe they've undergone some kind of unconscious development at a deep level of their being. But they seem to they seem to have this kind of naturally spiritually awakened self which was there inside them waiting to be born maybe it had always been there but it, it had just been covered up by a socially conditioned self but you know as soon as the ego the normal ego broke down in the midst of their suffering then this spiritually awakened self just seemed to emerge because it was there it was all, it was there all the time so maybe that's a factor the fact that there's a quality of of readiness and, and also, it depends to, to some extent on the attitude or the approach that you have towards your predicament. So I found um, that there, there, were there were certain important qualities in facing up to your predicament. One was a quality of acknowledgement, like acknowledging the full reality of your predicament. Like if you're diagnosed with cancer, you, you face up to the full enormity of that predicament, even if it means facing up to your own death, your own potential death, you know, and everything that you'll lose as a result of your death. So, you know, people who were really able to face up to that reality and also people who were able to accept it, you know, to kind of open themselves and let go of any resistance, then they, they were most likely to undergo transformation. Yeah, you know, the, the stories were so interesting. I'd love to jump into some. Uh, there's so many that move me. When we're looking at awakening experiences in combat, we meet David and he talks about how, you know, he's with this, with the enemy, basically, and he's losing blood everywhere and how he sat down with them and people are like, why are you sitting with him? And and he said, he's a human being. Yeah, David um, was a British soldier and he was fighting in the I I Iraq war. I think this was in 2002, was it? I can't remember exactly. But, um, you know, he'd, he'd already been a soldier for 10 or 15 years before then. So he'd, he'd already been exposed to a lot of trauma. He'd, al he'd already sort of faced up to his own mortality and the potential of, of, of dying. He'd already faced the death of some of his uh, fellow soldiers. But in the, in the aftermath of, a, of this uh, battle in Iraq, he, it, was, it was his job to just survey the battlefield and to find out whether there are any injured soldiers. And he found this Iraqi soldier, a guy who was obviously close to death. He was losing blood all over, the, all over his body. So David knew that he didn't have much time left to live. 
And he felt all I can do is just try and comfort him. So he just put his arm on his shoulder, his hand on his shoulder, and just spoke to him and said, it's okay, don't worry, just let go. And he suddenly felt that, you know, this guy, is not, he's not an Iraqi. He's not my enemy. He's just a fellow human being. And he looked into his eyes and felt this kind of merging of being with this guy. And the guy kind of, you could tell that the guy, his eyes lit up. He felt, you know, comforted by his presence. And then his friend came over, his, his, soul, his fellow soldier came over and said, what are you doing with him? Why are you with him? He's, an en- he's the enemy. And David said, he's not the enemy. You know, he's just a, he's, a, he's a human being just like me or you. You know, I want to be with him as he dies. So you can tell I'm getting emotional as I talk about it. It's such an emotional story. And, and, he, and that was a real turning point for him. He, he didn't want to be in the army anymore after that. He thought, you know, this idea of enemies is just completely ridiculous. We're all just fellow human beings. There's no need to fight. It's just ridiculous. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And strangely enough, the next day, he had a terrible back pain. He had a... A, her- a hernia in his back. Mm-hmm. And a herniated he to- disc. Herniated disc, yeah. And he had to be airlifted away from the battle scene because of his injury. It was as if some psychosomatically created this injury so he could get out of it. And that was basically the end of his military combat. He he retrained as a counsellor and a therapist. And, and the, yeah, that moment was a real moment of like connection and transcendence and, you know, a moment of spiritual awakening. Yeah, it was so powerful. Another thing, too, you write about is people in incarceration. And and you say, one of the lessons that the awakenings of prisoners can teach us is that freedom is more than a physical state. Hundreds of millions of human beings, perhaps billions in the world, are physically free but imprisoned by their minds. And then you go on to talk about uh, that you thought was the most moving story. You said perhaps the most moving story transformation through incarceration I have come across is that of Edward Little. Tell us about Edward. Edward, um, he's been in prison in Arkansas for about 40 years now. Oh, he had a really sort of horrific upbringing. His, his mother, and he's only 56, so that's yeah, crazy. He, he was in prison at the age of 16. He committed a crime at the age of 15. It was like a hit and run accident. He was brought up in a criminal family. He, was, he, was, um, he had a, a brother who was a, a criminal and a drug addict. So he was caught up in this situation where he was holding up a store and shot somebody, and the person died. And he was, he was sentenced to life without parole at the age of 15. Uh, so ever since he's been in prison, and he, he had a really, as you can imagine, had a really horrific time in prison. He was like um, sexually abused by the other prisoners. Um, you know, it was a very violent environment. And he became violent himself to defend himself so people would stop, you know, abusing him. But after eight years, he realized that, you know, in, in such a, a terrible environment, that he didn't realize, this was kind of instinctive. He basically had an instinctive realization that the only thing you can do in such a terrible environment is go inside. There's nothing outside. There's just sort of trauma and pain outside. So he began to spontaneously meditate, even though he didn't know what a med- meditation was, but he began to just sort of close his eyes and turn his attention inward and focus on his breath. And he did this every day for months, you know, t- two or three times a day. And after a few months, he went, underwent a sudden shift. He, felt, he said it was almost as if a wall broke down inside him. And something just, he became a different person somehow. And it was, he said it was the beginning of empathy. For the first time in his life, he was able to empathize with other people, to sense other people's feelings. And he suddenly felt this terrible shame for, what he, for his crime and the, the suffering he'd inflicted on, on the people, on his victims, on his own family. And he was just overwhelmed by sadness and, and empathy and compassion for other people. And it also in that moment of, you know, becoming empathic, he also entered into a mode of acceptance. He realized that his only chance of being happy was to accept his situation. And he, he's still the same now. You know, he, he's been a different person ever since. Now, I write to him 
quite regularly. And he has this amazing sense of acceptance, you know, and he's, he's become a bit of a legendary figure in, in prison because he radiates this serenity and people are naturally attracted to him. And he, he's very compassionate and supportive towards other prisoners, especially young prisoners. And then hopefully at some point soon he'll be, he'll be let out. It's not uncommon in prisoners. I mean, in, in the UK, here in the UK, there's an organiz- organization which I write about in the book called the Prison Phoenix Trust. And they support spiritual development in prison. They run meditation classes and yoga oh, wow. classes. But even more so, they, they have a newsletter where pe- prisoners can write to them to tell them about their, to write about their spiritual experiences. Not, not, it's not religious, it's just purely spiritual. And they, they have a great response you know, from people. And, and they, they, you know, they found that it is not uncommon for prisoners to have spiritual awakenings. You know, I think the reason for that is that in prison, the, one of the reasons anyway, is that in prison, you have to let go of things. You know, everything which defines you as a person is, outside, is on the other side of the prison walls. I mean, your, your identity is, is out there in society. Well, that's where your roles are. That's where your possessions, your status, your ambitions. So in prison, you know, you're nothing, which is why it's one reason why it's such a terrible experience, because you have to let go of everything which defines you. But that can also be a liberating process. Some prisoners find that as they let go, they find a deeper identity inside them. Their, their ego identity fades away and something more authentic and something deeper emerges inside them. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the ego. You write in the book, essentially, TTT is about ego dissolution. That's the only way of explaining it, really. You know, especially when addicts suddenly become free of their addictions. And when people who go through tremendous trauma over many years are suddenly free of the symptoms of that trauma. And also, you know, there are a lot of people who suddenly become free of physical conditions that have plagued them for years. You know, especially sort of you know, back problems, digestive problems, you know, all kinds of physical problems suddenly disappear in these moments of transformation. So it's almost as if the the, the ego, which has been their identity um, until this point in their lives, dies away. And that, that happens through the, the breakdown of psychological attachments, as we were just talking about in, in prisoners. If you think about it, the ego consists of attachments. It consists of attachments to, you know, your possessions, to your sense of success or status in society, to your roles, to your ambitions for the future, your beliefs about the world. All of these things constitute your ego. They're like the building blocks of the ego. And it can be quite nice when you've got lots of building blocks. You feel like, hey, I'm I'm a strong person. You know, I know who I am. I can function well in the world. Everything's going great. But when trauma comes along, when you go through a period of loss or depression or addiction, then all of these building blocks are taken away one by one. And at a certain point, when enough of the building blocks are taken away, just like a house will collapse when you take away the bricks, you know, the ego itself collapses. And suddenly, you know, it's a, it's a breakdown. Suddenly your, your self breaks down. But in that process, there's an opportunity for a latent, spiritually awakened self to emerge inside you. And that, that's what happens in these, um, in these moments of transformation. Naturally Savvy Podcast is sponsored by Morphous for Menopause. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. In Chapter 4, you, uh, you have the greatest loss, transformation through bereavement. 
Uh, you write about post-traumatic growth. Uh, when psychologists began to research post-traumatic growth in the late 1980s, they quickly recognized that bereavement is one of the most significant sources. And then you write that in your own research, you found bereavement as a major trigger of transformations. What's that like, the, pe- the post-traumatic growth? Well, it, it's a slow sort of deepening of your being. You know, it's a kind of like an expansion and a deepening. And it may, you know, it may manifest itself in you may feel depressed but somehow the depression is, is part of the process. It's part of the kind of like the emptying out process. It's almost as if you, you become deeper inside, but the process of deepening can be painful. You know, it can involve depression, a lot of sadness, but it's part of the process that, that you have to go through. It's like, a, a, you know, birth is a painful process. And, you know, that, that applies psychologically and, and physically. Every expansion, you know, involves a certain degree of pain, you, not always, but usually. But but certainly in my research, bereavement is the most common. You know, I mean, not many people go through imprisonment. Not many people are in the military, obviously. But amongst amongst the common human experiences, bereavement is the one which is most likely to bring about transformation. Just because you know it, it changes everything. The world, your world seems stable. Things it seems secure. You know, you feel quite comfortable and quite contented, and then there's an explosion. There's like an earthquake. Suddenly a person dies and everything is thrown into disarray. You know, suddenly the world is unstable. Suddenly everything is confusing and you feel disorientated. Um, and that's obviously incredibly painful, but when, you know, eventually when things settle down again, when you sort of recover a sense of orientation, then you, you might find that the world seems like a different place. You know, you might find that, Life, life somehow seems more meaningful, seems more precious and more fragile, more temporary. So, you know, I think bereavement is partly, obviously it's an encounter with death in the sense that we lose a person who dies, but also it's an encounter with our own death. We become very aware of the reality of death, which again is painful, but it can also be transformative because it stops us taking life for granted. Are there more differences between the two? No, it's it's a difference of degree, really. I I say in the book that transformation through turmoil is a very extreme and dramatic form of post-traumatic growth. It doesn't happen to many people. Post-traumatic growth happens to quite a lot of people. Um, But transformation through turmoil is quite rare. And like I say, it's not really clear why it happens to some people and and not others. But it seems to be, like I said before, it seems to be due with readiness and also to do with things like acknowledgement and acceptance. Right. I thought it was really interesting reading about Renee and you, you say she was a sudden, uh, an example, excuse me, of a sudden awakening triggered by bereavement. Tell us about Renee. Renee, she, she was, uh, when she was quite young, I think she was only 14 years old. She lost uh, a friend, uh, a boy who drowned. He was, he was diving for golf balls in a river and drowned. And she was only 14. It was the first time that she'd encountered death. And she was, maybe she was, you know, she was a little bit in love with this boy, but she, she was completely devastated by his death, you know, just threw, threw her life into a complete disarray. And it took a, lot, a long time to emerge from the grief, you know, and, um, you know, the whole, it was a small town where she lived and the whole town was affected by this, this boy's death. Oh, I'm sure. Of course, a sort of collective sense of trauma. And, but when, when she, when things began to settle down after a few months, <clears throat> She realized that, you know, she, she was, she had a different perspective on life. She had this sense of the, the fragility and the preciousness of life. 
she'd never really been aware that life was a temporary phenomena phenomenon before and she just felt different everything looked more real to her you know this is quite a common aspect of these experiences that the world seems much more real much more beautiful like you know there seems to be a kind of energy radiating from things a kind of radiance that just is naturally there in in the air in the atmosphere and she felt this new sense of connection to nature this feeling of you know re really being sensitive to the the beauty and the stillness and the grandeur of nature and she she says now that this experience even though she was only 40 when it happened that it shaped the rest of her life she felt a really strong desire to be altruistic to you know to to alleviate people's suffering she became a nurse her, uh, she's retired now but her career was a, was in nursing because she wanted to alleviate suffering and to connect with other people and ever since then she's never been materialistic you know she's always been very conscious of the environment you know um and as i say she's well another thing was that she, she's always been very appreciative of quietness and, and solitude and inactivity which is also quite a common feature of the experiences yeah, it was interesting. You write, uh, once a person has undergone spiritual awakening, there is little or no fear of death. And this is in your transformation through facing death. So you talk about Jane and, and her cancer and her TTT. And then you talk about near death experiences with David. You say he was like, had this serenity about it and this acceptance about what was happening, like while it was happening. That blew my mind. Yeah, that was an amazing experience. Yeah, his coat was caught in the in the doors of the train. He was pulled along the the platform, pulled under the train, so the train was setting off and you know traveling over him. But somehow he managed to survive. Um, but yeah, he he was he had he had injuries. Obviously, his arm was severed. But he describes looking at his arm and seeing his arm hanging off below the elbow, and thinking, "Oh, look, there's my arm." But he felt this incredible sense of serenity and kind of a sad detachment and time slowed down drastically. And then he, he um, you know, he, as I say, he miraculously survived and he was taken to hospital, but he was losing so much blood that as he arrived at the hospital, he lost consciousness. He probably died for a short time because of the loss of the uh, loss of blood. And suddenly he was outside his body. Suddenly he was in this, in the midst of this radiance. And uh, suddenly he was filled with this sense of euphoria and freedom and he had a you know he had a whole series of remarkable experiences while he was outside his body and in, in, in real time it probably only lasted a few seconds but in his mind it was an incredibly complex and you know long-lasting experience and afterwards it changed his life completely he became a com literally a completely different person just as a result of those few seconds and all those, those experiences he went through one of the interesting things about David is that he became intensely creative after his experience. He started to paint to try to depict his near-death experience and also started to compose classical music to try to depict it in music. And he had this new sense of serenity and you know, feeling of, a feeling of connection to nature and a feeling of connection to other people. You also talk about transformation through depression and stress, and you write that TTT uh, can be triggered by long periods of intense depression. And then you talk about spiritual depression. What What is spiritual depression? One thing I found through doing the research for the book was that some people actually went, underwent a spiritual awakening when they were quite young, but because they didn't understand it, they repressed it. And the repression um, caused a great deal of depression, you know. Yeah, so, 
so I defined it as spiritual depression. When you repress a spiritual awakening or when you have a kind of innate an, an, an innate spirituality, which you can't express, it creates a kind of inner, deep inner turmoil inside yourself. And it, it creates a sense of dissatisfaction and frustration, which you really can't define or understand, but it's just there deep inside you. And I think it's, you know, as we live, you know, we live in societies where spirituality is not really understood or accepted. So I think a lot of people suffer from some degree of spiritual depression. But eventually, you know, especially if you've had a spiritual awakening when you were young but repressed it, it has to come back. It has to express itself. So I found, I found that in some cases people would express, would undergo a kind of a sudden release of their original spiritual awakening 15 or 20 years later. You know, so and it would usually emerge through after a long period of depression caused by the original repression of their awakening. Well, in an interview, I heard you saying you had a spiritual awakening as a teen. I I did have a lot of spiritual experiences when I was a teenager, um, which I didn't understand because I didn't have a background in religion or spirituality. And there were usually feelings of intense connection to nature feelings of inner intense inner well-being like euphoria and everything around me would come to life and seem to be amazingly beautiful and real and the whole of the sky would seem to be filled with a kind of radiance and i'd feel that i was part of everything but at the time i didn't understand the experiences i thought that maybe they meant i was crazy you know um so I, I suffered from spiritual depression because i i didn't understand these experiences i didn't tell anybody about them i repressed them and I did go through a lot of um, a lot of turmoil in my teenage years, so I think that was probably the reason why. I thought it was interesting when we were talking. I was talking about addiction and how suddenly the people weren't addicted anymore, but it's it's more complicated than that. If you can kind of expand on that and that whole idea of that you have this a death of one identity and the birth of another, and you talk about that how ego is re- replaced by a higher functioning awakened self. That was definitely one of the the most, um, you know, unusual, one of the strangest phenomenon that I investigated in the book, uh, what I call addiction release. And there were, there were many people I spoke to who they'd been addicted to alcohol or drugs for years, and they'd gone through a really severe period of addiction. They thought they were going to die. You know, they'd hit sort of rock bottom in the classic sense. And then they'd wake up one morning and suddenly be free of their addiction. They, they feel like they were different people. And they didn't have the craving for drink or drugs. And suddenly they felt this sense of release and freedom and well-being. And it seems miraculous and mysterious, and it is. But I, I think it is possible to understand it in, in, the, in, in terms of a, a dissolution of the ego. I think when you go through a long period of addiction, everything is slowly broken down. Everything is slowly taken away from you. You know, your your ambitions, your relationships, your status, your possessions. And in the end, you're left with nothing, you know, and you you probably expect to die because there's nothing left. You have no hope. But in that process of losing everything, you know, your ego breaks down and suddenly in the breakdown of the ego, a new self arises. And the new self that arises doesn't carry any addictions because it's completely new and fresh. So the old self which carried the addiction has died away and the old self carried all the trauma, you know, related to the, the years of addiction. So that's the way of explaining, the only way of explaining it really, the, the self which carried the addiction dies away and a new self emerges completely free of, of any addictions and uh, any trauma. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine like people who I know who have PTSD and have flashbacks 
that if they went through this transformation through turmoil, they wouldn't have those anymore? PTSD can coexist with uh, post-traumatic growth, but usually after transformation through turmoil, it, it fades away. Uh, or, or maybe some symptoms remain, but you're not as affected by them. Because one thing that happens is that you don't identify with your, traumatic, with your trauma as much. So you may have traumatic thoughts, traumatic memories, traumatic feelings, but you're aware that they're not really you. They're just sort of passing by like a stream. And you are the person who's sort of sitting on the riverbank watching the stream or the river pass by. So you don't identify with them and they lose their power and eventually they begin to fade away. You know, one of the things that you're talking about with the ego dissolution with TTT makes me wonder, well, are there things we can do ahead of time to work on our egos so we can be more open to possibly having this experience? Like almost like how do we prepare ourselves or how do we have the best chance of, you know, having transformation through turmoil? Definitely. I think, um, you know, although most of the people I spoke to did not have a background in spirituality, I did find that people who began to meditate, even if they didn't really know what meditation was, like David, the soldier, for example, he began to meditate, even though he didn't know what it was. He began to just sort of focus on his breath and relax. And that seemed to, uh, you know, in increase the possibility of transformation because the meditation creates an openness and it, it makes the ego kind of soft. It makes the boundaries of the ego soft so that new experiences can flow into our being. So that's really important. Also therapy. I found that there were, there were a few people who had therapy, counseling or other kinds of therapy. And that was helpful because it created a, a safe, supportive environment where they could allow their transformation to express itself. But I mean, also, um, you know, in, in the book, I suggest that there are a few principles we can take away from these experiences and apply in our own lives. And one of them is to, to not be too attached to external things. I think, you know, the dissolution of psychological attachments is the main reason why these transformations occur. And we can apply that in our own lives. You know, we don't need to be attached to possessions. We don't need to be too attached to our appearance or to ideas of success or achievement and so forth. We don't even need to be too attached to other people. We can love other people, but we don't necessarily need to be attached to them, you know, in a kind of psychological sense. So if you live in a, in a more detached way, then that, that can also help the, the transformation to, or increase the likelihood of transformation. Another thing well, that I recommend in the book is contemplating mortality, because encounters with death have a lot to do with these experiences. So I recommend that, you know, that we spend time contemplating the fact that life is temporary, fragile, and precious. You know, death is inevitable. But also just being aware of death, being aware of the reality of death can be transformative. Yeah, that's true. When you're talking about the detachment or looking at attachments, it makes me think of Buddhism. Yeah, it's a very important part of, of all spiritual traditions, really. I think the reason why people become monks is because they want to detach themselves from, you know, uh, possessions, from, you know, emotional involvements, from, uh, from ambitions and so forth. I mean, I don't mean a detachment in a negative sense. Detachment it can have a negative connotation of not caring, of being apart from other people. I don't mean it in that sense at all. I mean it in a psychological sense of not needing external things to define you or to support your identity. And yeah, Buddhism, it's a very strong element of Buddhism. And that's also why Buddhism has a very strong emphasis on, on death, on contemplating death. 
in Buddhism, you even have the, the cemetery meditations. When you when people when monks go to cemeteries to meditate, they sit down amongst the the graves and contemplate their own mortality. And it's it's, it's a great way of um, you know breaking down psychological psychological attachments. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Steve, was there any story that you were hoping that I would ask about that you wanted to share from the book? There were so many, and I just chose some of my favorites. The story which uh, I find most moving in the book, it's in one of the later chapters on addiction. And it's uh, a story from a, a Scottish woman called Eve, who was a really severe alcoholic. She was, a, she was an alcoholic. She was a, a really heavy drinker for 29 years from a young age. And like a lot of addicts, she, she went through that process of, you know, losing everything slowly. You know, she lost her friends. She lost contact with her family. She couldn't hold down a job. Um, she lost her self-respect. You know, she lost any sense of hope. And, and eventually she lost her, all the possessions. She ended up homeless, living on the streets in Edinburgh. And she was shoplifting just to, you know, be able to buy alcohol or just actually stealing alcohol from shops. And at the end, you know, she she tried to give up. She'd been to you know AA. She'd been to she'd been on courses. Uh, she'd had support, you know, some friends who tried to encourage her to stop drinking, but she couldn't do it. So she'd given up the idea of giving up. She couldn't do it. She just accepted that there was no hope. So she thought that she had no hope at all. There was no reason left to live. And and at the end, she was only drinking to control the withdrawal symptoms. She wasn't actually deriving any you know, happiness from drinking. She was just controlling her shaking and her, you know, paranoid delusions. So in the end, she decided that she had no choice but to commit suicide. So she attempted suicide by jumping in front of a coach. But luckily the driver swerved. And, you know, a few minutes afterwards, the police arrived and she thought she was going to be arrested. But the policeman was actually a nice guy and said, um, you know, how did you end up in this situation? Can I do something? Can I take you somewhere? You know, where can I take you? So she said, well, just take me to my parents' house. And she hadn't seen her parents for a long time. And her mother said, you know, you're an alcoholic. I suppose I'll have to give you a drink, won't I? So her mother gave her a glass of wine. So Eve picked up the wine, then put it down again. She picked it up again and put it down again. She couldn't drink it for some reason. She didn't know why, but she was physically unable to drink it. And then she looked at herself in the mirror. Actually, her mother put her in front of the mirror and said, look at you, you're an alcoholic. And she said that she didn't recognize the person in the mirror. She felt suddenly dissociated from the person in the mirror. So she thought, who is that person? That's not me. And then a doctor arrived to give her some, doctor gave her some medication to control the withdrawal symptoms. And when she came to, after the medication wore off, she felt free. She felt the craving for alcohol had suddenly disappeared. And she felt this sense of inner wholeness and well-being that she'd never had before. And she felt this sense of empathy, you know, for her mother, for other people in general that she'd never known before. It was a real, you know, it was a case of addiction release and a, a miraculous transformation of, of her essential being. And everything became completely different. You know, she had this sense of well-being, which continued on an ongoing basis. And she started to go to AA meetings to help. And somebody said to her, you, you sound like you've had a spiritual awakening. And she thought, what's, what's that? What's the spiritual awakening? And she had no idea what it was. But she started to read about it and thought, yeah, I have had a spiritual awakening. But also somebody at the AA group said, you're on a pink cloud. This, you, know, you know that this isn't going to last. This is just temporary. And she said, it is going to last. It's, it's not temporary. And she was right. It continued on an ongoing basis. So now it's been 11 years since that experience. 
and she's never had the craving to drink again. She's existed in this continuous state of well-being, and the main aim in her life is to help other alcoholics or to help other people in general. So, that, yeah, I thought that's that's um, one of the most amazing stories I think in the book. Yeah, that was so incredible. I'm so glad you shared that. The book is Extraordinary Awakenings: When Trauma Leads to Transformation. Steve, is there anything else you wanted to add today? Well, I, I think one of the one of the things I'd like to pass on to people is that um, you know what I learned from doing the research in the book, from speaking to all these amazing people, was that there is this incredible resilience inside human beings which we're not aware of. You know, when our lives are running smoothly and comfortably, we only really scratch the surface of our beings. But when we're really challenged by crises and by trauma, then often we become aware of these amazing reserves of strength and confidence and, and power inside ourselves. This kind of spirit, deep spiritual force which exists within inside human beings. So I'd like to remind people that that even if they can't sense it, that deep spiritual power is there inside them. And when they do face trauma, as we always will in human life at some point, you know, they can draw on that spiritual power. It will manifest itself. Oh, I love that. That is so beautiful. Well, you can find all of Steve's information. Is it www.stephenmtaylor.com? That's right. Yep. Stephenmtaylor.com. Great. Are you on social media as well? Yeah. If you go to my website, then you'll find my links to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and so forth. And you'll find lots of articles and poems and videos as well. Oh, well, this has been lovely, Steve. I'm so glad you came on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.